0: The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance in Security on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of ClearanceJobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm Bigley Ranish.
1: And welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Security clearance processing times are improving, but once you obtain a security clearance, you may find yourself struggling to transfer that clearance eligibility to another agency. That's the topic of a recent report released by the Security Policy and Reform Council with the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, or INSA. Today, we're chatting with Larry Hanauer, Vice President of Policy at INSA, and Gregory Torres, Director of Personnel Security at Booz Allen, and Personnel Security Working Group Chair of the Security Policy Reform Council at INSA. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining me here to talk about the paper. My first question is for you, Larry. So what is INSA and why do you care about this topic of security clearance reform?
2: Sure, that's a a great question. So INSA is an association of government agencies leading contractors and industry organizations and academic institutions. And we try to promote public-private collaboration in the intelligence community to make the intelligence community, the Defense Department, and others in the national security sector more effective and more efficient. We focus on a wide range of issues that affect both the public and private sectors, issues like technology development, the ability of the government to acquire and adopt innovative technology, cybersecurity best practices, acquisition reform, those sorts of things. Really, the business of intelligence. And one key issue for government and industry is security clearance reform. An effective security clearance process is absolutely necessary to enable industry support to government. If the clearance process takes too long or if it deters too many applicants from even applying for clear jobs, then industry can't provide enough people or the right people to support their government sponsors. Now, so as you mentioned, the government's made great strides in streamlining the security clearance process in recent years, but a lot of work is left to be done. Now, INSA has a working group that addresses these challenges and tries to develop actionable solutions. As you mentioned, it's we call it our Security Policy Reform Council, or SPRC, and it gathers experts from the public and private sector to identify and try to solve problems that, that affect the cleared community. It promotes information sharing, the adoption of best practices, and advocates for policy reform. So this new paper that we put out on personal mobility is just one of many initiatives we have going on to promote security clearance reform and to promote other policy changes that make the intelligence and national security community more efficient.
1: Awesome. So it's clear INSA cares about this topic. Why write a paper specifically?
2: Moving people around from agency to agency, which is called personnel mobility. Sometimes it's called reciprocity, but that's really important for both government and for industry. It's particularly critical for contractors who support multiple contracts at multiple agencies simultaneously. There may be some individual contractors who spend 40 hours a week supporting one client. You would think that, you know, a top secret clearance is a top secret clearance is a top secret clearance. It shouldn't matter who granted it, who did the investigation or accepted it and who you're transferring it to, but it does. Agencies often want to relook at some of the work that's been done. And so what that means is that contractors can't get to work on a new project at a new agency in a timely manner. And that hinders companies' ability to perform the work that they've been contracted to do. So with this paper, INSA wanted to identify the challenges, to moving contractors between agencies. And the paper provides some very concrete examples of bottlenecks in agencies processes. So we could propose ways to get contractors to work, to get them on site and get them to work more expeditiously.
1: Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to unpack all of the great insights from that report in this conversation. Obviously, I encourage everybody to check it out. We'll include it in the show notes here. But it really was a very well-written, like everything INSA does, white paper that really talks about this important topic. So I kind of want you to talk a little bit, Greg, about some of the recommendations that you included in there. What impact would making those actually have on industry, on employers trying to hire and and retain and move people around in this space?
3: I think really without a doubt uh, the paper and the associated presentation that we've already provided to some key government personnel really demonstrates that these recommendations would reduce delays and costs to complete the clearance cross or mobility process. So when we say reduce costs, we're talking about the cost for both government and industry. The more efficient we can make this process, the less it'll cost. In terms of delays, there really is without a doubt a number of changes we could make that would significantly speed up the process as well. Honestly, I'd really like to see the mobility process work for industry similar to the way it works for some government situations. Uh, let me give you an example. In my last job with the government, I was working for one of the intelligence agencies. I was asked to accept a joint duty assignment at the Pentagon for a few years, not unlike what it's sometimes like for a contractor community, meaning a contractor is working for one agency in a skiff for a few years, that contract ends or they take a new job where the client is another government agency. In my case, my new boss at the Pentagon set up a start date for me and told me to have my security office send my clearances over to the Pentagon. I asked my security office to do that, and it was done the next day. That was it. I was still an employee of the intelligence agency, but I was able to go right over to the Pentagon, get issued a Pentagon badge, and start working in their skiff. In contrast, though, had I been working as a contractor for that same intelligence agency and needed to move to a new contract at the Pentagon, my program manager would have coordinated my arrival with the government contract representative at the Pentagon, but then a two- to five-week process would start to get me into the Pentagon skiff. Much of that time might be spent with me sitting in my new company for weeks waiting for this to happen. In other words, I was in a skiff yesterday, but it'll take me weeks to get back into another skiff. That's how different
1: the process is. Yeah, and Larry, can you speak to that a little bit as well?
2: Greg makes a great point. And, you know, as I said earlier, you would think that once you have a certain level clearance, a top secret clearance, that you could just carry that around with you to whatever agency you're supporting or whatever contract you're working on. But because agencies have these different processes for onboarding people and accepting their clearances, not only between government employees and contractors, as, as Greg just pointed out, but also just different processes between agencies. Some agencies bring people on board and process their clearances more effectively than others. It's also can be incredibly time-consuming for staff with polygraphs who are in very short supply, and agencies treat the polygraphs that are performed by different agencies differently than they treat the polygraphs that they perform themselves. This all has an impact on mission, and so we tried to identify in this paper the obstacles, some of which Greg listed, and just try to to make this whole process more efficient so we can improve the execution of the mission.
1: Okay, and so Larry, I was hoping maybe you could walk me through. I know the report included five key recommendations. What were those specific recommendations that you included in the report?
2: exactly right. Five recommendations for the government to just make the personal mobility process more efficient and improve outcomes. The first is for the Department of Defense to eliminate requirements that are specific to its 43 component organizations. Uh, you know, As I mentioned, you know, having different rules in all of these organizations just creates a bureaucratic process that people need to work through. The Department of Defense should just make consistent requirements and, and processes across the board, assign a primary lead official who can make sure that can, there's consistency in policy and make sure that the process is sort of one-stop shopping. The second recommendation was to streamline top-secret SCI adjudications. Right now, if you don't need SCI access right away, but you're applying for a top-secret clearance, you'll only be adjudicated to the top-secret level. That means if you later on need access to SCI information, you have to go through another adjudication process, which takes additional time. We recommend that everyone being processed for a top-secret clearance be adjudicated for SCI access so that... If they need it in the future, that adjudication has already been done. The adjudicative standards for both are essentially identical, so it really makes more sense to do that process once, rather than have to go back later and do it again. The third recommendation we made is that agencies should consider counterintelligence polygraphs sufficient to begin work, even if they ordinarily require a full scope or a lifestyle polygraph having a counterintelligence polygraph is generally really sufficient, provides all the security information that agencies need to put people to work on site, give them access to information. And scheduling a full scope polygraph can take anywhere from a month or two to as long as 12 months. And that really just hinders the ability of contractors to get to work and do their jobs. So we recommend that agencies accept counterintelligence polygraphs as sufficient to begin work on site and to begin getting access to information while they wait for the full scope polygraph to be scheduled. The fourth recommendation is to provide industry with expanded access to the clearance repository. Right now, companies just can't see what's going on with their employees when they're being processed for clearance or or processed for mobility. And so it's difficult for companies to staff their contracts if they have no visibility into how their people are being assessed. So we recommend that companies be able to get access to these databases so they can see whether their employees are likely to meet the standards. And then the fifth recommendation is really another process one. It's to try to unify reporting timelines and timeline goals across agencies. Right now, agencies have such different practices, such different timelines, they report data differently. It's really difficult to get a handle on where the challenges are. So we recommend that ODNI and DOD designate a single person or or a team that can oversee the implementation of all of the policies that impact personnel mobility and then report data that's consistent.
1: Yeah, and so reciprocity is kind of the term that we all tend to know and talk about. And that's something that INSA has addressed in the past in white papers. This paper specifically is is more about mobility. So why the kind of pivot to a different term? Why is mobility maybe a broader issue?
3: Great question. So let me just start talking a little bit about reciprocity because reciprocity is an activity with a very specific meaning and scope. And it's defined in Security Executive Agent Directive number seven, which is about reciprocity, obviously. Specifically, it really is about moving someone's security clearance eligibility from one cognizant security authority to another. One example might be for an individual whose clearance eligibility is in DoD system of record, which is the Defense Information System for Security, or DIS, And it needs to be moved to perhaps the CIA. When the CIA reviews a previous investigation and eligibility type and dates, they are required by that document to reciprocally accept them under certain circumstances. So the five-day goal in that policy is measured from when someone asks an agency, like the CIA in this case, to review and accept a clearance eligibility that was granted by another agency until that agency says, yes, we do, we accept it. While that's reciprocity, it's only a portion of the process, and it's the shortest portion of a multi-step process to move someone from one job that requires a clearance to another. And it's the only portion of the process that is generally measured and has a timeliness goal. Some of the other parts include the broader requirement for us to create and send a, the government an SEI nomination package, for example. But the process of creating that package might be fast or it could take several days depending on how much information we need to collect from the employee and that depends on the agency. Then the government reviews that nomination and renders a decision of which reciprocity is part of, that process can sometimes be very quick, perhaps one to three days, like it is at the CIA, or it could take one to two weeks for other agencies. After that, depending on the agency, we may need to schedule with the agency the SCI indoctrination, which could take a few days or a few weeks. In all, moving somebody from one government's gift to another could take two to five weeks of processing, of which, sometime, the reciprocity decision is part of, and sometimes it isn't. A good example is where it isn't for the movement of DOD. For example, if one of our new hired employees is sitting in a skiff in, in one DOD agency and we need to move them to another DOD agency, there is no reciprocity decision to be made. The person's clearance eligibility is already in DOD system of record, so the two to five weeks in that case is not connected to making a reciprocity decision. We just need to remember that in this scenario, if the employee was just sitting in a DOD skiff. They had to have their accesses debriefed and then wait two to five weeks to get back in. So reciprocity is one thing and it's very small, but mobility is talking about the whole end-to-end process of moving somebody from one classified program and sitting in another classified program. I think that's really the difference.
1: Yeah. Did you have anything on that, Larry, as well? Why the mobility, you know, why INSA wanted to address mobility and expand on that conversation about reciprocity that you started a couple years ago?
2: Yeah, as Greg noted, personal mobility is just the broader challenge of getting people through these processes and getting them to work in multiple agencies. And you know, just to give a sense of the scale and the scope of the problem, we're talking about 17 different intelligence community agencies and 43 different components of the Defense Department. So you can imagine if each one of them has different processes or different approach uh, to uh, to to accepting people who are coming to work for them, to accepting their clearances that just you know is a is a recipe for delays increased costs and slowed processes, slowed work. And again, to give a sense of the scope of the problem, there are about a million cleared contractors. And we've estimated just through an informal poll, more than 15% of industry's cleared population could be affected by these delays every year. So that means that, and this is just an estimate, as many as 150,000 contractor personnel could be affected by these delays each year. That has an extraordinary impact on the, the, the work that industry gets done for government Government and the ability of government agencies to, to accomplish their mission.
1: Yeah, you talk about all the exceptions, which I, which I think is super relevant in the paper, and you broke down the inconsistencies across agencies. Can that be solved? And what are some of the steps that folks could take to address some of those inconsistencies in those individual agencies? Yeah,
3: I'll talk to that a little bit. You know, the exception piece is really about previous clearance decisions that were made by exception. So what does this mean? This means that There was something outside of the norm that allowed the gaining agency to not accept reciprocally and gives them the opportunity to review the details and decide if they can accept the same risk as the previous agency. One example of that situation that might cause a clearance eligibility to be granted, like TSSCI by exception, is someone who marries a foreign national. In those cases, what generally causes delays is how long it takes the gaining agency to obtain the previous investigation and how long it then takes them to re-adjudicate those cases the good news is that if you look at INSA's 2019 paper on reciprocity we cite two specific ways to improve that process and the government is working to start reporting on the timeliness of those non-reciprocity timeline activities, which really have never been measured before so far as we can tell. But I'll give you one example. One specific way to speed up obtaining previous information is for each of the major adjudicative components within agencies to get electronic access to the other agencies to see into their systems to review what caused the previous exception and how they might mitigate that risk, rather than waiting days, weeks, or months to get a hard copy of that previous investigation. So let me give you an example. What if an IC agency gets a request for reciprocity of an individual whose eligibility by exception is visible in DoD system of record? So far as we can tell at this point, they have to send a request to get a copy of the original investigation. What we aren't sure of is how long that actually takes. The policy suggests that the agency that has the record should provide it within 10 days, but that certainly doesn't explain why some of these decisions can take months. That said, What if instead the IC agency was able to log into the DOD system of record that the DOD adjudicators used? This is a system where they document what the exception was. In the example from before that we discussed, they might find that the reason for the exception was someone married a spouse from the United Kingdom. And they might be able to say that they accept that risk. That would change the process from taking weeks or months to get that other investigation to perhaps minutes if they could log into the system that has the information. We're pretty sure the government is working to make this better, but that seems like one way to do it that might not be a heavy lift or very time-consuming to change from a process perspective.
2: Lindy, can I jump in for a second? I just want to address the exception issue. Throughout the intelligence community, information is shared, right? Lindy, after 9-11, agencies broke down silos so that people across agencies should access all the information that the intelligence community has that they need to do their job. If you're sitting at Agency X and that agency had decided that it was okay to give you access to SCI information, even though they had to provide an exception such as, you know, you had married a a foreign national, you're likely going to be accessing information in your job from agency Y. So if you now need to move to agency Y to support a contract, why would that agency need to reevaluate or re-adjudicate your background investigation? You've already been accessing that agency's information from your first job, but yet, because agencies need to look at these exceptions, or they feel the need to look at these exceptions and reevaluate them, it just creates a delay that adds very little, if anything, to security.
1: Yeah. And I appreciate how the report provided guidance. You know, it's, it's not, you're not just presenting problems. You really have solutions in here specific to DOD, the IC and ODNI. Well, I so appreciate your time and this topic. Thank you so much to Larry Hanauer with the Intelligence National Security Alliance, Gregory Torres with Booz Allen and with the Intelligence National Security Alliance Security Policy Reform Council, really producing some meaty research here and actionable insights that can be used across government. I know folks are listening when you produce these white papers and you're really helping to advance the conversation about how we can improve this process and make it better. So I very much appreciate that and I very much appreciate your time today.
0: Join clearance jobs in the Intelligence and National Security Alliance for the new IC Empowering Women, Engaging Men, taking place Thursday, July 14th from 830 to 530 at the army Navy Country Club. From Ignite Rounds featuring the Honorable Sue Gordon to a keynote address by Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haynes, it'll be a collaborative and conversation-inducing day you won't want to miss. Learn more at insaonline.org.
4: Welcome back to Security, Clearance, and Security. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. And I'm here with my co host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking in this segment about how geopolitical events, specifically Russia and China, are impacting clearances for people with ties in those places. Lindy, it's worth noting that clearances with family members in Russia, China, financial interests in either of those countries, that's always been a hard sell. But it's gotten a lot harder in recent years. This is something that impacts a fair number of clearance holders, actually probably more so China than Russia. But do you get a lot of comments or questions on clearance jobs from naturalized U.S. citizens who are concerned about relatives and and other uh, ties that they may have overseas?
1: We do, and like I say, it does come up, there are just certain countries that are just more likely to have issues. And I think the government has been pretty clear to emphasize, you know, it's not that they're against a people group or have any issues with applicants from those countries. But if you just look at the actions and behavior of the countries of Russia, and the country of China, there are just specific risk factors there. So the government is going to be very interested in family members that are still there and how much leverage that would have. And just knowing like the government has an interest in protecting itself. But I think it also has an interest in like protecting individuals and their safety. And I think, you know, it would not be doing itself any favors if it brings somebody on to work in a national security career and then ends up endangering that person's whole family in another country because of that person's role. So I think it's just very much looking at on an individual by individual basis, what those connections are, how tied that person is to the country, their role, you know, in national security, what type of information they're accessing. It's always renewing, too. It's more likely, I think, we see some of these issues, a much bigger issue at the TS level versus the secret level or a much bigger issue at certain agencies. I think the country of origin issues and the threats that those generate are pretty universal across the cleared workforce, because as we know, how China and Russia work is they will take the smallest nugget they can possibly get and exploit it and extract everything possible out of it. So if there's a risk there, there's a risk there. And it just really applies across the cleared workforce in a way that's a lot bigger than a lot of the issues we can kind of segment out and say, well, for a TS or within the Intel community, that's really tough. I think across the board, these are issues that affect applicants, every applicant that we we see with, with deep ties into. You know, one of those sticky countries.
4: Yeah. And, you know, a couple of points I want that that you raised that I want to just emphasize. You know, one being this is not supposed to be a commentary on somebody's loyalty or allegiance to the United States. The pertinent guideline, the pertinent issue here for clearance holders is actually called foreign influence. And the idea being, you know, can this person be influenced, i.e., coerced, forced into? Doing something against the interests of the United States government as a result of the ties that they have in this foreign country. Inherently, there, that means that, you know, this is not the concern about a naturalized U.S. citizen from China, for example, becoming a spy just because they don't like the United States. That being said, it is, as you point out, still a real problem and something that I think, you know, ironically, in, in some regards, reciprocity, um, which we've talked about previously, has actually exacerbated. Because as you point out, you know, hostile foreign governments are willing to take whatever in they can get to access classified information. So, you know, maybe you have somebody who has relatives in China, and they're working at, you know, some agency that you would think, well, geez, you know, what's the risk there? You know, we I wrote an article recently about park rangers, who national park service rangers who occasionally need security clearances well i doubt the chinese government is going to be you know trying to infiltrate the park service what's the benefit to them but you know if that person is cleared and they go and take their clearance to a, a more sensitive federal agency because of reciprocity in many cases they can do that and so that would be you know the potential issue with that getting back to kind of the the thrust of what we were getting at here with recent geopolitical events, the question is, how does that play a role in how threats are assessed from foreign countries? And does an increasingly aggressive China, for example, or a a Russia on the warpath, heighten the risk? And I would tell you just from firsthand experience that most of our colleagues on the other side of this in the government say yes absolutely and so there has definitely been some concern lately from people who you know have gotten a clearance previously they've been you know holding it without issue for years and they've mitigated the concerns about relatives in China or Russia there's concern by those folks that recent geopolitical events are going to make the government revisit that favorable adjudication and say well you passed muster 5 or 10 years ago but now we're more concerned have you seen anything like that where anybody is kind of expressing some worry about uh, changed circumstances or is, is your sense that you know, most of the concern here is from applicants?
1: It's always interesting with continuous vetting. You know, if there's things that will come up, I think that I, you know, I imagine would kind of flag things for some individuals saying like, hey, what is the government looking at here looking for? Or how might they look for or apply foreign influence issues around continuous vetting? Again, I think we're where we're at in whatever we're calling it, trusted workforce 1.25. I'm not seeing a lot of chatter interest from applicants other than saying like, hey, these are things you already needed to identify for the government, you know, relatives that were overseas, foreign travel or trips that might come up, you know, through continuous vetting, you were already supposed to report that there's nothing new. Again, i primarily see issues coming from the applicant side. And that's where I'd be interested in your take. Are there steps that an individual can take to maybe mitigate some of the concerns about those countries? Do you see something that kind of tips the scales for the applicant that has success in this versus the one who just really is going to have a hurdle too high in order to get a clearance?
4: Yeah. So, you know, it's a great question. And some of this is kind of counterintuitive. A lot of folks that we encounter who are facing foreign influence cases with their security clearance, their focus is, well, you know, what can I do to show that these ties overseas are, you know, really not an issue. How can I prove that? And they kind of gloss over or, or fail to see the bigger picture, which is that actually one of the the ways that you can do that is by highlighting and and really drilling down on the ties you have here.
1: That's a key takeaway from this conversation is like, if you are looking to improve your case or mitigate, you know, the more you can show your allegiance to the United States and different attachments and ties is certainly, certainly the path to take.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, even basic things just like involvement in your kid's school, community involvement, we we really try to paint a picture of, you know, what the person's life is here in the United States and why they would never walk away from all of that. If you are somebody who has a scenario like this that you're confronting, it's not a lost cause. In the vast majority of these cases, we can mitigate the concerns, but unfortunately, recent geopolitical events with Russia and China are Definitely making it harder with those two countries. And so it remains to be seen, you know, over the coming years, how things unfold and what happens with folks who maybe have already, you know, had their clearances favorably adjudicated, whether they're going to be looked at a second time with, with more scrutiny.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.